I can't know him well enough. And so we come uh, this week to chapter 15, John's Gospel, beginning in verse 18. Our Lord and our Savior speaking. And he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. By all these things, they, uh, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, then they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which was spoken in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you for all that it accomplishes in us. And Jesus, we realize you could talk about so many different things and everything that's recorded in this book is our words that you know are important for us to understand. Great revelation of your heart and of your mind. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to be continue to be active in this room as we study your word. And Lord, that you would bring great edification and strength to our lives through it. And also bring great and needed perspective. And we ask it of you in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And in what I think is one of the most stunning and, and mind-boggling uh, statements in all of the Bible. He has just informed the disciples and us that he considers us to be his friends. Now, you would think that after Jesus got done speaking to the disciples and declaring to them that he considers them to be his friends, that with that kind of a revelation, he would have just followed that by saying, and because you're my friends, because of our friendship, everyone is going to love you. And so go out and have a carefree and effortless and wonderful life. But that's not what he does. Because to become Jesus' friend, 
means we not only gain a friendship, but we also gain his enemies in this world. And so Jesus takes this great teaching, great declaration about us being his friends and how he considers us that. And he follows hard right after us, right after that. And he warns us about the persecution that is going to come into our lives as a as a result of being his friend and him being our friend. Now, in verse 18, Jesus states that the world is going to hate us. And the idea isn't that it might hate us. When Jesus said, if the world hates you, the word if doesn't mean it could happen. It might not happen. The word if is used in the, in the idea of sense. If I spoke to my wife, Karen, and I said, I'm heading down to the store to pick up some milk. And she might say, well, if you're going, why don't you pick up a loaf of bread? And the idea isn't she's wondering whether I'm going to go or not. She's using the word if in the sense of sense. And Jesus does the same thing here. He is saying that the world will hate us. The idea isn't that it might hate us, but that it will. It most certainly will. Well, this raises the question in our minds, and that is who and what is this thing called the world that Jesus is speaking about here? Because the word word world is used in a lot of different ways in our culture. It's used in several different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used to speak of the physical planet of the earth itself. Sometimes it's used to speak of uh, humanity as a whole. Jesus used it in that way in the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world, not the planet, not the dirt, but the people in the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But here the word world means, as it does many other places in the Bible, it refers to a world system made up of nations, made up of societies, made up of individuals in this world who choose to live their lives as if God does not exist, as if the God of the Bible does not exist. So they reject their need of salvation. They reject God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. They refuse to live their lives according to his will or according to his commandments. They believe that the highest source of wisdom available in the world comes from man himself. That mankind is best equipped to define right and wrong and good and bad. And essentially they are engaged in the worship of man or in the worship of self. It doesn't mean that everyone in the world is an atheist, that they don't believe in God. It doesn't mean that someone in the world cannot be religious, because very, very often they are. But the God that they worship is man. The God that they worship is self. Their religious systems are always man-centered rather than being God-centered. And if they believe in heaven, if they believe in a salvation, they believe it only in the sense that they are worthy of it automatically by virtue of existing. Or if they believe that there is something even more demanding required in order to get into heaven or to be saved, 
They believe that it is something that a person in their own human effort can attain to. Anywhere, salvation can be found anywhere in their mind uh, else but in a faith in Christ. Sometimes knowingly, but usually I think unknowingly, they are actually under Satan's power. They have simply joined in the devil's ancient rebellion against God. Jesus declared Satan to be the ruler of this world earlier in John's gospel. John chapter 14, verse 30. Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, he said to the disciples, for the ruler of this world is coming, speaking of the devil, and he has nothing in me. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, verses 3 and 4. He said, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost, in whom the God of this world, speaking of the devil, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The persecution that a Christian faces in this world can take a lot of different forms. Sometimes it can be physical in its form. There can be beatings. There can be uh, imprisonment. There can be uh, murder or killing or death. Now, remember, it's one of the great blessings. If anybody ever minimizes uh, the wonderfulness of a Judeo-Christian ethic and the Bible being the basis of the development of this nation and upon which its laws were established, uh, it, it, it is to defy reality. The fact that we live in a country that has a Christian foundation means that we don't face the kind of persecutions that other Christians face in other parts of the world where the foundation of the nation long ago was not the Bible, it wasn't Christianity, but it was Hinduism or it was Islam. The portion of a Christian in those lands in terms of persecution is very, very different from what we face. But persecution is going to come into our lives no matter where a person lives in, in the world, every Christian is going to face it. It just depends on the degree to which we're going to face it. Sometimes the persecution can be verbal, where there'll be threats or there'll be slander that will be uh, spoken against us or mocking to our face related to our faith. Sometimes it can manifest itself in people shunning us or isolating themselves away from us. Economically, again, in our country, uh, there are laws in place to keep people from uh, being uh, uh, prejudiced against them on the basis of religion. But again, this Bible is not written solely to the Christians in the United States of America, but the whole world. And there are parts of the world today for a person to become a Christian, to profess Christ, to live a life like Christ, can not only mean the end of their employment and their uh, how they make a living, but they can certainly say goodbye to any kind of promotion that they would uh, hope for for the rest of their lives. And here Jesus warns us as his followers of the kind of 
treatment, the kind of persecution we can expect in this world. And not only that, but I think even more importantly, why it comes our way so that when it happens, not if it happens, so that when it happens, we won't be surprised by it. Sometimes it can surprise us when we are rejected or hated or shunned solely because we're Christians and that and and it can shake people and sometimes it can even shake their uh, faith. I mean, here we are. We're just nobody's with a great God. We understand that. But we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives He's conforming us into the image of Christ on a daily basis. He has made and is making us into a person that is completely unlike the person we once were, both inwardly and outwardly. We have never been nicer in our lives. We have never been kinder. In our lives, we've never been more holy, more patient, more loving, more hardworking, more responsible in our lives. We've never been a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better child, a better neighbor, a better worker, a better citizen in our whole lives. And you would think that our families and our friends and our neighbors and even the whole world would be thrilled over the fact that we have become a Christian and that a line would form for them to become Christians as well. But it doesn't happen. Very often our new faith is met with the role of the eyes. I remember I became a new Christian Back in 1980, and I was working for the phone company at that time, and I was a a lineman. And at that time, I don't know what it's like today, but there was a little bit of machoism that was tied to that pole climbing and all that heavy-duty kind of stuff. And I remember guys would just roll their eyes at me on it and think, oh, no, Kyle's got the Jesus bug. And We're just going to have to put up with him for six months. It's a phase. He'll be over it. And uh, because sometimes they had seen that kind of thing come and go. But there's that kind of a reaction, the disrespect, you know, oh, so and so has got Jesus. So sometimes we become the joke of the family, not before our faces, but telephone conversations and everything and the laughing that can go on behind our backs. Old friends, very often they'll stop calling and. Or maybe even not want anything to do with us because they know what's going to happen in our lives. And very often certain friends and co-workers will uh, begin to noticeably avoid us and very often again not want anything to do with us at all. We can have this idea that if we could just be enough like uh, Jesus in this world that everyone will like us, everyone will appreciate us. But it isn't true. And Jesus knows that it isn't true. And Jesus knows that amazingly, and it's a testimony against the world, the very opposite is true. And so let's find out why, as Jesus instructs us here on how to maintain perspective in persecution. First of all, in verse 18, Jesus wants us to know that if the world hates us, to remember that it hated him before it hated us. When the world hates us, 
When we experience that persecution, we experience the rejection, we're to remember immediately that that was Christ's portion uh, in this world as well. And I think that's intended to just immediately sober us up in terms of our expectations of how the world is going to react in general to our decision to follow Christ. Because if we go into this Christian life with a wrong expectation that everybody's going to be excited about the fact that we're a Christian now, uh, uh, that we're going to be very badly shocked and maybe even stumbled at the reaction that it, that it oftentimes really does uh, produce. I think it's important to realize that the world today, Jew and Gentile alike, would kill Jesus as surely as they killed him 2,000 years ago. A different technology. They'd assassinate him. But the fact of the matter is, man hasn't changed in 2,000 years. This world hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And Jesus hasn't changed in 2,000 years. And he would be killed as surely as he was 2,000 years ago because his life and his teaching would be just as great a threat today to corrupt religion and government as ever it was 2,000 years ago. But all of this is intended to be an encouragement to us that when persecution happens, to realize we're in good company, that we're on the right path. Jesus is our company, and we're on the path that he is on. That's how the disciples felt in the early church when they were arrested in Acts chapter 5 for preaching the gospel and brought before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. They were threatened that they should not preach the gospel anymore. We're told that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ being hated or persecuted for being an idiot is one thing, but being hated or being persecuted for following Jesus and obeying Jesus is an honor in this fallen world that we live in. If the choice is between being faithful to Jesus and hearing his praises, but then being persecuted by this world or having everyone in the world like me, but be unfaithful to Christ. And that is the choice. Then the choice is very, very easy. The choice is to be his friend and in being his friend for his enemies than to become our own. How can a person hate perfect holiness unless they're evil at their core? If there is no righteous reason for hate concerning Jesus, then the hate must come because hate is in them. In other words, their reaction is a terrible reflection upon them. A reaction of persecution and rejection of a Christian because of their faith in Christ, is always a terrible reflection upon the person doing the persecuting and never upon the Christian. And so Jesus is saying, don't be alarmed by the world's 
persecution or its hatred. It is an honor to be persecuted for righteousness sake in this world. It's an honor for that to happen because it means that we're on the right side of things and that we're in very good company. Jesus accepted the rejection of this world and the persecution of this world as a matter of course. And he's telling us we need to accept that as well. Now, second in verse 19, another reason for this rejection and persecution is because we're not of the world. But rather, he said, we've been chosen out of the world by Jesus. We are not a part of the world and its system like we once were. But we're now a part of something entirely different, part of God's family. We're part of the kingdom of God. And because of that, we're different. Sometimes we don't realize how different we've become. We don't realize how different in ways that look like Christ we've become to the world all around us. And the world doesn't like the kind of different that Jesus and the Holy Spirit produces in a human life. The world likes to bully those that are different. I think that most of us have witnessed either on film or maybe you've seen it firsthand if you've been in 4-H or something like that. Or you've seen it in school or a documentary or something where you'll see a, a great pen that is full of baby chicks. All of them look like twin brothers and sisters. They're all the same yellow color, the same size. You couldn't pick out one from the other. And then there's one chick in the bunch that's a different color. Or it's a little bit smaller and a little vulnerable. And then to watch those chicks without being taught anything at all, to then uh, surround that chick and then proceed to peck that chick to death for the sole reason that it's a, it's a little bit different uh, from them. The same thing is true spiritually. The world notices, doesn't understand it, isn't comfortable with it, and thus it attacks it as a threat. The Christian whose life is different morally and spiritually from everyone else. And that's the truth. Peter wrote by the Holy Spirit in First Peter chapter 4. He said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his life in the lusts of the flesh of men, but for the will of God. And here it is. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these things, they, that is the world, think it strange that you don't run with them anymore in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you as a result. They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. It's funny thing about this world. I think most of us recognize it, that this world just totally gives lip service to tolerance. But the fact of the matter is that the world operates totally on the basis 
of conformity. The same way you take a youth and that youth can be rejected or turned upon because they don't wear a certain style of clothes or they don't have a certain appearance or a certain uh, hairstyle or something like that. The world will do the very same thing to the person who does not share their morals or their beliefs. The world is a very intolerant place as it relates to that. It is truly only tolerant of what is the world and everything outside of that it hates. And it's very, very perverse that those who live godly, righteous lives should be considered the oddballs in this world or the people who are wrong. And yet that's the assessment and increasingly so in this time in human history. And yet for all of that, there are no regrets for the child of God to be freed from the bondage of sin. To know God and to talk and walk with him on a daily basis. To experience his gifts and to experience his power. To watch him and to feel him clean up our lives on a daily basis, the peace basis, the peace that comes with knowing that we're right with God and knowing that we're healthy in our influence in this world and on our fellow man, I'll tell you, it makes any persecution worth it. And the world's persecution reminds us that this world is not our home, but that we have been called out of it and we have obeyed Christ's call and he is making us into something different. And when we understand persecution in that way, we can say in the face of it, hip, hip, hooray. Now, notice third in verse 20. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, we cannot expect the world to treat Christ, who is now in us, any differently than it treated Christ 2,000 years ago when he was here physically. When we put our faith in Jesus and are saved, it's not the beginning, it's not the end of Christianity. This isn't just fire insurance that we're getting, it's just the beginning. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. He begins to make us more and more like the Lord. And we become like Him in our thinking and in our speaking and in our doing. And the upside is that we're becoming more and more like Him every day. And the downside that's so often coupled with that is it can mean more and more rejection, more and more persecution, more and more isolation. But being conformed to the image of Christ... With all of the joy and the peace and the love and the godly character that comes with it makes persecution by the ungodly totally worth it. If you were to come to me and say, you can have all of the fame, all of the accolades, all of the... Somebody were to say, I'll make fans of the entire world. I'll make them fans of you. As long as you would be willing today to stop the Holy Spirit's work 
of conforming you into the image of Christ, that would be the easiest decision in the world to make. There's no way we would give up the one for the other. Persecution simply means that the world sees Christ in us and recognizes us as his servants. And I'll tell you, that's its own reward. Now, notice number four in verse 20, the second half of verse 20. Jesus said, if they kept my word, they will keep your words uh, also. So this hatred or this persecution is worth enduring for the sake of those who are still out there who will listen to the gospel and will look at our lives that God is changing and pull from them the hope and the confidence that what he has done in us, he will also do in them. It's very important to keep that in mind in the midst of persecution. Not everyone is going to reject the gospel. Not everyone is going to reject us. There are going to be many who will listen to the gospel. They'll be saved. They'll look at our lives and they won't be repulsed by them, but they'll be attracted by our lives. And it's that knowledge in the lives, depending on personality and all, it's that knowledge that can cause many of us to be willing to withstand all of the world's rejection to be able to do that and offer that to the world. I look at myself as a debtor, as a Christian. I realize that in order for me to hear the gospel at a point in my life when I would be willing to receive it into my life and make Jesus my Savior, and I realized that in order for me to look around at that time in my life and to be able to see men and women who were absolute miracles of God, that God had changed, that no one can deny that, there is a burden, wonderfully so, of responsibility that I feel to supply the same to people who are still out there who are like I, I was at one time, without God and without hope in this world. I could not live with myself if I jettisoned all of this and went undercover as a Christian in some way to get away from the persecution and the rejection of men and women, if I knew that there would be as a result of that a single man, woman, or child out there that would not hear the gospel as a result of that decision and not be able to see the miracle that God can do in human lives. And it's something that in some of us is the thing that would make us face all of the persecution we will ever face in our Christian lives, to know they are still out there like we were once out there. And I want them to see and to know what someone suffered persecution and rejection so that I could see it and know it at one point in my life. I want to be for others what somebody was for me. They're still out there. The fact that we haven't been raptured up into heaven is an indication that there's still those out there who will listen, who will watch, and will come to Christ as a result of watching and listening to our lives. And I have noticed through the years that many who rejected me at first, and I don't, I don't consider what I've been through uh, to be persecution, but 
the rejection, the distancing that people did, the end of relationships that occurred and all of those kinds of things. It's interesting in the early days of, of a Christian life where so much of that is happening all at the same time. Every relationship seems to be in play. Which ones am I going to lose? Which ones are going to stay? I mean, it can be weird. You can lose relationships with your parents, with your children, with your best friends. I don't need to tell you this. It's a big deal. There's a lot of weird stuff that can happen those early times when days and months and weeks when you become a Christian. The fascinating thing is, is you get through that period and God will get you through that period because he'll bring new friends into your life, new relationships to replace the old. But what is very, very rewarding and happened to me continually when I worked for Pac Bell, it's called something different now, is that all these people that did the shunning and they were cordial and they'd work with me and all of that, but they didn't want me to open my mouth. And I wasn't like getting people in the corner and putting a, hitting them with a Bible. I was a polite person. But, but it was interesting to watch then as weeks would go by and months would go by and years would go by, how they'd catch me in some quiet place in the yard or some, which was where all the trucks were and the poles and all this stuff, or some other place, and they would then ask me a question about salvation, about the Lord, about the Bible, when their wife just left them and they, and they got blindsided by it, or their child was diagnosed with something and they had no hope that was any bigger than their own frailties. And then they would come and they would ask the questions. And to know that you and I can be one of those people in this world that other people can come to when they get to that place and ask those questions makes enduring any rejection and persecution we face in this world well worth it. Notice number five in verse 21. The fact that they hate Christians reveals the fact that they don't know God. They don't know God the Father. And this speaks of persecution that Christians endure from religious people and religious systems. No one who truly knows God, will ever persecute a Christian. I don't care how many candles they light. I don't care how long that religious system has been around. I don't care how many people are a part of that religious system. I don't care how many prayers they lift up uh, to heaven. The greatest persecution that Jesus ever faced was persecution by religious people. And the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, they claimed to love God the Father, and then on the grounds of their love for God the Father, hate Jesus. And Jesus said to religious people both then and now, anyone that would do that, they do not know the Father. They don't know God. They may have a relationship with a religion or a religious leader or a religious system. But no one persecutes Christians and no one hates Jesus who knows the Father. It cannot happen. Even today, the greatest atrocities that are 
committed against Christians all around the world. For the most part, they're committed by religious systems. You think about how many Christians have died through the ages because they would not denounce the fact that salvation is on the basis of simple faith in Christ. Burned at the stake, gutted, parted out, their intestines pulled out before they were finally killed by men and women who claim to represent Christ did it to them. You think about how many men and women around this world will convert out of Islam and into Christianity, which is viewed as a capital crime by much of Islam, and they will be killed today for their faith. This kind of thing is going on all of the time. In fact, those that study these things related not just to missions and missionaries, but just Christians who live all around the world, that this, they consider this to be the most dangerous time to be a Christian, not in the United States of America, but worldwide in all of church history. This passage that we're looking at is not theory to most of the world, of, of Christians. This is where they live every day. We live in it as, as well. And so this kind of thing is always going on. And sometimes the persecution at the hands of religious people is harder for us to understand than when it happens from secular people. But Jesus warns us, don't be surprised by it. Now notice number six in verse 22. The world hates Jesus, he said, because he has exposed their sin and he has removed their excuses for continuing in sin. Very often the root of persecution or the root of hatred of a person toward a Christian or toward Christ is a deep conviction of their own sin that they know is inside of them. When Jesus came into the world... He defined sin. He confronted sin. He called on people to repent of their sin. And this makes every person who continues in sin, rather than repenting of their sin and putting their faith in Christ, responsible for the judgment that God promises. And in general, certainly in our country, the one thing that people do not like is being held responsible for their actions and for their beliefs. But God holds us responsible for that. And so they don't like to hear this kind of thing, so they will then try to silence not just the message, but also to silence the messenger. And we are the messenger. It's so weird that the world hates the church, hates Christians, not for the evil that is in it, but for the good that's in it. Notice number seven in verse 23. There's only 60, so just relax. Here Jesus goes even further than he did in verse 21. He states that if someone hates Jesus not only does he not know the Father, but he hates the Father. 
Again, you've got the Jewish religious leaders saying, we love the Father, but we hate you. Jesus said, if you hate me, you hate the Father. Why? They're absolutely identical in nature. Identical in purpose. They're absolutely indivisibly, well, divisibly there, but absolutely one in these ways. If you, because they are identical in nature, if you hate Jesus, you hate the Father as well. And again, this statement is, is directed to those uh, Jewish religious leaders. We love the Father. We hate you. Jesus said that's absolutely impossible. You hate me. You hate the Father. Now, if you don't think that can't get you into trouble today, I'll tell you how you can prove it still can. Buy an airline ticket for Tel Aviv. Fly into Israel if they give you a visa. If they know you hear this sermon, then they probably won't give you a visa. Take the train into Jerusalem. Go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And declare to the Orthodox Jews that are worshiping at that wall... That because they hate Jesus, they also hate the Father. And you watch what happens. I'll tell you what will happen. You will be arrested by the Jewish police for your own protection so fast in order that you don't get torn from limb to limb in that religious environment. The words carry the same power, the same truth, They are just as true today as they were 2,000 years ago. And Jesus wants to be absolutely clear on that issue, because if a person doesn't understand that, then they will never trust in him and be saved. Number eight, notice that Jesus, verse 24, not only is Jesus hated for his message, verse 22, but he's also hated for his life and for his miracles. Why would people hate Jesus for his life and his teaching and his miracles? Because his life and his miracles testified to the truthfulness of his claims. And his sinless life and miracles makes man's rejection of him indefensible. Because Jesus entered into human history and lived the life that he did said the things that he did, performed the miracles that he did. No one is afforded the luxury of ignoring his introduction into human history. The fact that he lived here, lived the life that he lived here, it forces every single human being to come to some conclusion concerning him. His life testified to the truthfulness of his claims Man's rejection of him is indefensible. Notice number nine in verse 25, that all such persecution is the fulfillment of prophecy. So it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus quotes from one of two verses. Nobody's exactly sure on it. It can apply to both. Either from Psalm 69, verse 4, or Psalm 35, verse 19 which predicted this rebellion against Christ, this hatred of him. When Jesus is hated, the passage teaches he is always hated without a cause. Because he is always hated without a cause, 
That hatred always reveals the wickedness of the heart of the one who is doing the hating. This is how heaven sees it. This is the perspective of a holy God. Notice number 10, uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. He has told us these things ahead of time so that when these things happen, they won't stumble us or shock us or make us fall away from the faith. You stumble over things you didn't see or you didn't see coming. Jesus says, I want you to see this coming so that when it happens, rather than it being something that stumbles you in your faith, it confirms you in your faith because it's exactly what I told you would happen. Every Christian needs to know that these things are going to happen to them on some level. And I think that it is vitally important for a new Christian to know this so that you don't get surprised. You will lose relationships in your life because of your life with Christ. But again, he will replace those with better and healthier relationships. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And when it happens immediately, we're to think there's this isn't a reason for doubt or being stumbling. Jesus told me ahead of time it would be like this. Notice number 11 and Chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus returns to the subject of religious persecution. He talks about them, and he's talking to the disciples there, but it applies to us as well that they would be excommunicated or put out of the synagogue. If we get put out of a church or church discipline, say we got put out of of Calvary Chapel of, of Modesto for some reason like that, next week I'm at Shelter Cove. Or Big Valley or First Baptist or you name any one of the 130 other churches in town. Excommunication from a, for a Jew from a synagogue was about the end of their life. They were cut off in their, in their minds. It was to be cut off from God. It was certainly to be cut off from every family member that remained in the synagogue. No talking, no letter, no touch, no phone call, nothing with them for the rest of your life. It meant your livelihood was gone because most often your job was tied to, in some way, someone who was in good standing in the synagogue. It was a very hard thing to happen in your life. Everything changed from top to bottom as a result of that kind of a religious persecution. You see some of that religious zeal and hatred even today. Where people can convince themselves in the name of religion that murdering others and doing so, they're doing the will of God. We think of it mostly in the context of Islam today, but historically it hasn't been limited to Islam. Islam has a 1400 year history of it. There was a time when Saul of Tarsus was a part of that camp as a good Jew. Later became the Apostle Paul. And he said, in every synagogue, I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you, speaking to the Lord. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by there consenting to his death. I wanted him dead as much as everyone else that was there. And I held the clothes of those who were stoning him to death. Stephen was the object of that kind of persecution. Paul later became the object of that kind of persecution. 
for those of you who come to Christ, not out of a background of wickedness or debauchery or extreme kind of sinfulness, but you come to Christ out of a religious background. It took leaving a religion for you to hear about a relationship with Jesus Christ and the need to be born again. When you leave that religious system so often in order to enter into a relationship with Christ, that's taken as an offense to the religious system that they could not ultimately offer you what would satisfy you. And it's considered to be an insult and great, great shunning and isolation and persecution can occur as a result of that. But the most important relationship in your life when that happens is your relationship with Christ. You never let that go, not for any relationship in the world. Notice number 12 in chapter 16, verse 3. They will do these things, claiming religious reasons, but it merely reveals, Jesus said, that they don't know the Father or Jesus. And then number 13 in verse, chapter 16, uh, verse 4, the first half of that verse, he tells them of this coming persecution ahead of time so that when it happens, they'll remember that he told them ahead of time so that they don't think everything is out of control. You know, that God is in control. It's just as Christ said it would be. Then number 14, in the latter half of, of chapter 16, verse 4, he did not tell them these things earlier during the three and a half years of his public ministry when he was with them, because during that three and a half years, he bore the brunt of all of the persecution. They directed it toward him, but he's leaving now. And now, because this kind of persecution likes to be directed towards some living being, they were now going to become the objects of the persecution that was directed toward Christ. And so it is related to our lives. Earlier, they didn't need to be concerned about it, it but now they needed to be made aware of it. And then finally, the Holy Spirit, his place in all of this is recorded for us there in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, which we looked at at another time. But basically, here's what Christ is saying, that the Holy Spirit will give us the power to continue to witness for Christ and to live like Christ in this world, even in the face of this world's persecution and of its hatred. We must not allow the world's persecution or its rejection of us to silence us related to the gospel or to cause us to cease to grow in Christ-likeness and allow that Christ-likeness to come out of our lives, out of our mouths, out of our thinking and our speaking and our doing for fear that it's going to result in, in persecution. And Jesus is essentially saying, however high or to whatever level the world ratchets up its persecution against you for these reasons, God will add the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit that is needed to supply you with those things, that kind of boldness, that kind of strength that is far greater than anything that we're facing. The Holy Spirit will always outstrip the resources of even the world 
in its, in its hatred of us. One of the things that's fascinating to me about the passage is that when Jesus taught these things to the disciples, there's no hand wringing. He doesn't say, listen, guys, you know, it's been fun talking to you about all these other things, but now I hate to tell you about all, all of these things. There is no pity offered to us by Jesus in the passage, only a warning not to be surprised when it happened. And the reason that there's no pity that's offered by Jesus here is that for all of the persecution that the world may heap upon us, is God's people in this world. It is far and away and infinitely so the greatest life that a person can live in this world. So Jesus does not apologize for the life that he's called us into or the consequences that it will bring into our lives. There is no better life, whatever the consequences that a person can live, the one than the one that we are living as Christians. God knows it. Christ knows it. We know it as well. Now, let me really close with this. That was this is a part of the earlier closing. For those of you who don't know the Lord today, you have never, ever put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to do that today. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. They're going to have a badge on it. says prayers. You can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin this relationship. You say, who in their right mind would begin a relationship when you tell me right out of the gates that this is going to happen to me? You're looking for a challenge. And God knows it. God knows what we were made for in the original creation. Not in our fallenness. We were made to live for God. We were made to do great things for God. We were made to stand for God. It's in us. It's still there. God wants to born us again into all of that. I think that one of the reasons that it, it just kills me is the sissification of Christianity today. Where there's an attempt to portray it as this soft life, this easy thing. You become a Christian, you get a mansion next, and then you get a sports automobile, and then you get this, and everything goes great for you for the rest of your life, and everyone's going to love you, and so won't you please become a Christian? That's a lie. And I think while that may draw some people in and God's grace can cover a lot of different motives when people come to Christ, I think there's another group of people who looks at it and says, that doesn't frighten me at all. I need that. I want the kind of character that that kind of life will produce in me. And the hardest thing that you will ever do and can do in this world is to live a life like Christ in this world and to preach his gospel. There's nothing harder. You will die doing it. You'll die by the day. But resurrection life comes out of it. It'll be the hardest thing for you to do day in, day out, the trial, the warfare, the heartbreak of all of it. It's still the greatest life, though, that a person can live. But there is a death that is found there. There is a stretching, a demand that is found there that God the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be able to live. And I watch the television, I watch sports events, so 
all the time they have the Marines and the different things to join the army and an army of one and the Marine Corps and all those things. And I think that there's a lot of things that can develop character in a human's life on some level. I think the Marine Corps will do that. I think sports will do that. I think a lot of things can do that in life. But nothing will be harder or develop greatness and greatness of character in a human life than to live the life that Christ describes in this book and to be faithful to him in the face of everything else. That's where life is found. That's what we were made for. And these men and women up in front would love to pray with you to begin that relationship and that life today. Let's stand together and we'll pray.